All right, so we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5, go on into chapter 6, but we're going to stop in verse 3, and uh, we'll take a large section of chapter 6 uh, next week. But tonight we're going to focus on the signs of dull hearing as we uh, work through this text. So Hebrews 5, we'll begin at verse 11, and we'll go into chapter 6 and go to verse 3. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance to spend time with you, Lord. We thank you for your word, that it's true, that it's inspired, Lord, that it's inerrant, that it speaks to us. And Lord, we know that you had a message for that original audience, Lord, that you spoke to them literally and truthfully. Lord, but nevertheless, you have a message for us tonight. So Lord, help us to understand your word, Lord, and how it was written. Lord, what it meant, Lord but also how to apply it so we can grow and, and mature and, and be effective, Lord, in our, in our Christian walk. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing I dread every year around my birthday is my required work, my, my work required hearing exam. Now, it's kind of a silly thing, really, to dread, but I do dread it. I do. And the reason I dread it is because it takes so long. It takes so long and I fail it the first time I take it every year. I fail it the first time I take it every single year. My wife says it's because I'm neurotic, but I think I actually have documented hearing loss. And so, man, I don't know what it is, but I go in there and I'll hear my stomach growling, you know, because you, know, you have those things on, I'll think. And I'll get kind of sidetracked for a second. And I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to press the button, you know, and then, um, you know, or like I'll think, like, is that a beep? Did I just hear something? And then I'll start pressing it a bunch of times and you'll hear that voice saying, only press the button when you hear the beep. You know, or I'll hear somebody else's beeps on theirs, you know. So I get all freaked out in there. And so uh, I always come out and the guy like looks at me and it's like, hey man, you got to come back. You failed it. And oh, I, I had the pink letter and stuff like that. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's not good. Now, everyone's familiar, right, with, with, with a hearing exam. There are certain sounds that are played and you put the headphones on and there are certain sounds that are played high and low and when, when you hear the sounds, you have to press the button kind of thing. And the purpose of that is to check what's called your baseline, right? It's, it's, it's where are they kind of establish a baseline. Most sailors in the Navy, their baseline is real low because they work around jets, right? But, but, but they establish a baseline, and then, and then whenever you take a hearing test, they check those numbers according to your baseline. And if your hearing gets better or you figure out how to time the beeps, right, your baseline goes up. Like, wow, what happened to your hearing? You know, but if you fail it, you know, a bunch of times they lower your baseline. Now, tonight the writer is going to give the Hebrews the results of their hearing test. As we'll see, their baseline was startling low. It was startlingly low. They, they were very low. They had become dull of hearing. Now, being dull of hearing carried some sad implications, and we'll see what those implications are tonight as we work through this text. But as we're going to see, the Hebrews' hearing was bad, but... It wasn't hopeless. The writer is going to give them some insight and some advice to correct their hearing, to raise their baseline or their Christian walk, how they can grow and mature. So as we focus on these two things tonight, we'll learn two things. Number one, first, the signs of being dull of hearing. And number two, the remedy for cases of being dull in hearing. So first of all, in verses 11 through 14, we see the signs of being dull of hearing. First, in verse 11, we learn that being dull of hearing means that you have a lack of interest in spiritual truth. Now, last week, we began with the new section of Hebrews, right? 
the writer began talking about Jesus as our high priest. And he shows us that Jesus isn't just any high priest. He is the great high priest. He is greater than Aaron or any of the Levitical priesthood. And he's going to take some time in the following chapters to explain that. Now, in anticipating maybe some Jews objecting, saying, hey, well, wait a second. How is Jesus a high priest when he's not from the tribe of Levi and when he's not from the family of Aaron? How can he be a high priest? And as we saw last week, the writer pointed out some prerequisites that Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled some requirements in his life and ministry to make him a high priest. We saw that he became a man. He had a ministry of compassion and sympathy. He offered himself as a living sacrifice, as a sacrifice to God. And one important one, he was appointed by God. Now concerning Jesus' appointment, we left off in verse 10, where we're told that Jesus was appointed as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is an important truth because the writer is going to go on and explain a lot about it. But he pauses for a second where we pick up in verse 11 and says this, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now that to whom is referring to Jesus. He's talking about, hey, I have a lot to tell you right now about Jesus and how he relates to this Melchizedekan priesthood, how he, he fulfills this role and how he's greater than the tribe of Levi. But he had to pause for a second and let the readers know that he had some honest concerns about their hearing, about their situation. He had much to say, and as we'll see, he does have much to say. Chapter 7 through 10, he, he launches into a big discourse. And the things that he was going to say were hard to explain. Now, it wasn't because he had a hard time explaining these weighty truths, but it's because it was based on the difficulty of the hearers. He was concerned at their spiritual condition, whether they were actually able to receive the things that he was going to give them. In other words, he's saying, hey, guys, are you guys even mature enough for me to break this down for you? Are you even going to comprehend it, or is it going to go right over your head? Now, the way that these believers were um, in a bad spiritual state is because we're told that they had become dull of hearing. Notice, they became dull of hearing. They weren't always dull of hearing but they had become this way over time. Now, the way that these believers became dull of hearing is seen in the word dull itself. It doesn't mean lame, right, or, you know, or a loser kind of thing, as we say, oh, that person is dull. But the word dull can be translated as lazy, apathetic, or as seen in chapter 6, verse 12, sluggish. And so, in other words, there was no excitement left in these believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. They lacked the zeal that they once had. You see, when they became believers, man, they were so excited. They left Judaism, and they were learning new truths about who Jesus is and the work he did on the cross and how they were to live for him. And they were growing, and and the Lord was doing a great work. But something happened to where they actually stopped, and they were actually digressing. Their baseline was getting lower. Well, what happened? Well, if you think about it, life happened to them. Spiritual warfare, temptation. These believers had become weary and well-doing by their circumstances and persecution. Now, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? And he says, hey, guys, you guys are babes in Christ. I wanted to give you solid food. And they were babes because of carnality. They were drifted into sin and things like that. They were compromising in sin. And, that, and that's bad. But we, have, but we see another case here in Hebrews. Life happened to the Hebrews, 
I mean, think about it. They were in persecution. They were facing some persecution, and they were discouraged by that. And as a result, it began to rob their joy and to steal their zeal. And so because of that, they wanted to find relief. And they thought that the key to their relief and happiness was to pull back and to not get in the word and to not grow, but rather to turn back and go back to Judaism. And their idea actually was affecting them adversely. It, it, was, it was affecting them oppositely than what they thought. Rather than giving them peace and rest and fulfillment, it was actually causing them to become dull of hearing. It was causing them to, to not grow. Now, in the same way, there's a lot of noise that Satan tries to blast at us. A lot of noise. We need to resist them, and we need to resist the devil and make every effort to draw near to God. Retreat or rest from the word of God does not bring rest. It, brings, it does not bring peace. Rather, it causes us to eventually become dull of hearing. And, and, and that's what it does. We think, oh man, I'm under a lot of stress right now. I'm under a lot of attack by the enemy. And our natural result is, hey, I'm gonna pull back. <laughs> I need some rest right now. I'm not really gonna get in the word. I'm not really gonna, gonna worry about this. I just need to take some time and step back and kind of have some peace for a moment. And we think it's good, but in reality, what happens is we become distant from the Lord, and that distance begins to create a dull of hearing as we approach the word. Dullness of hearing comes when you stop seeking to know God and apply his word to your life. You stop caring. From there, apathy creeps in. Before you know it, interest in the Bible is lost. You don't lose your salvation, but you begin to lose interest in the Bible. Sermons become boring and going to church sometimes becomes a chore, you know? And so, yes, some sermons can be boring. You're like, I know, you're so very boring. And, you know, but I'm doing good, right? The kind of thing, I'm, I'm sitting to them, kind of thing. Yes, some sermons can be boring, but, but nevertheless, we have to check our heart. If it does, am I excited about getting in the Word of God? Yeah, we can be tired, right? It's a Wednesday night. We've all had a lot of stuff going on throughout the day. But at the end of the day, am I excited about knowing Jesus and his word? If not, maybe there's a little bit of dull hearing. Maybe our baseline has dropped a little bit from when we first believed. Second, at the beginning of verse 12, we see that there's a lack of growth in spiritual truth. The writer says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. And you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Stop there. So notice this over and over and over the writer makes it very clear that his audience are believers. This is seen by the fact that they should have been teachers by now. So obviously he's not talking about a non-believer. A non-believer doesn't understand spiritual truth. They're spiritually discerned, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. These believers should have been teachers by now. They should have been comprehending what he was saying and being able to teach others. These believers weren't new believers. They had been in the faith long enough to, should have been, you know, to, to be able to be teachers. Now, not everybody has the gift of teaching. There is a spiritual gift of teaching, but everybody should be teachers who are Christians. Jesus communicated this in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? And then he said, teaching them all things that I've taught you, and lo, I'm with you always, to, you know, to the end of the age. And so part of our commission as disciples, as those who have laid down our lives and fallen Jesus, is we're to make disciples. That includes preaching the gospel, 
and then encouraging those who get saved, come alongside of them to equip them. Now, yes, the one work that we do is by encouraging them to come to church, right, so they consider them teaching the word. But nevertheless, oftentimes these new believers have questions like, hey, is it okay to do this? Well, no, that's sin. Well, why? Well, the Bible says this. Or, hey, what about this? And then, you know, you're able to minister to them. You don't have to be a pastor or, or a called teacher, but you just have to be a Christian, someone who knows the word. And this is what these believers should have been able to do. They were Christians long enough to where they should have come alongside of these believers, older women discipling younger women, older men discipling younger men, or, or vice versa, what, whatever it might be, they should have been able to minister one to another. But rather than progressing in their understanding of God's word, they actually needed someone to teach them again the first principles of the oracles of God. The phrase first principles is referring to the elementary truths of the word of God, of the scriptures. It's like saying it's the ABCs of the word. So by this time, they should have already knew the ABCs, and they should have been able to teach themselves these things and also teach others. But there was a lack there. They weren't even teaching themselves. They needed someone to teach them again these foundational and basic truths. Now, why did this happen? Well, this, this, this happened not because of a lack of instruction. It happened because of a lack of application and a lack of applying the truths to their lives. You see, these believers, they've been believers a long time, and they probably went to, to church and you know, were around other believers, and they failed to apply the works of their life. They, applied, they failed to apply themselves to the scriptures to grow, and as a result, they were hindered in their spiritual growth. Now, James says something interesting in James 2, 23 to 25. Listen to what James says about hearing the word. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes it for himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not for a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so, yes, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the word, but we have a responsibility as believers to apply the word to our life, to study the show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. By taking the passages that we have on Wednesday night or on Sunday morning and reading those over and, and, and meditating on those and, and thinking about those, I would encourage you on for Sunday morning, take Mark 15 or, or 16 or wherever we, we left off and read that passage a couple times before a passage teaches and, and see what the Lord will say to you. See what you get out of it. Read the sermon notes on Saturday morning and apply yourself to it. I can honestly say that I've learned more in teaching than I have in just listening to, to different sermons because in teaching, you have to apply yourself and study. You have to actually kind of know, I think, I think so, right? You kind of have to know what, what you're talking about in order to teach others. And that's, and, and that's usually what happens. You have to apply yourself. And, and, and we as believers, we have to apply ourselves, And we have to think about it, meditate on it, and chew on it. And that's why we have that reflection time at the end of service. Because it's, it's supposed to drive it home. It's not just a time where that, that we pause. It's really a time to reflect and let the, word, let the word of God get deep in us. These believers were failing to do that. But rather, it was going in one ear, not the other. And as a result, they look back at their hearing exam and they think, man, our baseline dropped. We're not growing in spiritual truth. Third, in the rest of verse 12, on to verse 14, there was a lack of skill 
in using the word of God. He goes on and says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so the writer wanted to give these folks some solid food. He wanted to give them some steak. And this steak was gonna be a weighty doctrinal truth concerning who Jesus is and how he relates to the order of Melchizedek. He wanted to go on. But he was concerned that they were not able to handle this large dose of solid food, but rather because their diet was milk. You know, we all know babies. I mean, you know, when they have milk, you can't just feed them a steak. Our kids try to do that to our kids sometimes. Like, here, take this whole dinner roll and chew on that. You're like, no, you can't do that, you know? And so, and, and that's, he was concerned about that. He was concerned about whether they were able to actually chew on this and, and swallow it. The fact that these believers only wanted milk was an indication that they were babes in Christ. Now, a baby in Christ, yes, is often seen as a new believer, and it's exciting to see new believers in Christ. I mean, it's amazing. It, they're kind of the lifeblood of the church, right? They, they get saved, and they have this excitement and a zeal, and they have kind of this discovery time of, you know, when they're learning new things, and they're excited, and, you know, they make mistakes, and, you know, you get to come alongside of them, and and pray with them and, and things like that. I mean, they're learning, they're processing. But after a person has been a Christian for a long time, you know, they really shouldn't be a baby anymore. They should really grow out of that baby stage. In the same way, babies are cute for a time, but if they remain a baby until they're 25, it's not so cute anymore. They should grow and progress. They should be able to chew on solid food. In, in the same way for a person who's been a Christian for a while, they should mature. Those who are of full age, the writer says, should be able to eat solid food. In the Hebrews, at this time, because of the fact that they were dull of hearing, probably were not able to receive this. And he linked it to their lack of maturity. And really, it was based on two things. This is what caused them to be, uh, have, have a lack of maturity. Number one, in verse 13, they were unskilled in the word of righteousness. The word unskilled means inexperienced in using the word of God. So they were immature believers because, yes, they lacked knowledge and they also lacked the skill to appropriate, moral, uh, appropriate the word of moral choices that they had to make based on the word. And so, you know, so they weren't, they weren't using the word to apply it to their life to make decisions on moral things for their life or on scriptural things. Second, in contrast, mature believers in verse 14 says, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The New Living Translation paraphrases this, kind of makes it a little more simple for us. Here's what it says. Solid food is for those who are mature, who, have, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So those who are mature in the faith, those who are believers, those who are applying the word to their life and are, are using it in their life, will have a skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now that doesn't mean that we actually don't need teaching anymore, we do. But John tells us that we have an anointing by the Holy Spirit that we should be able to be discerning in our Christian walk. So the more you apply yourself to the word, the closer you draw to Jesus, you'll start recognizing the difference between false teaching and true teaching. You'll say, oh yeah, I know that's false. Sin 
in, in righteousness. You'll understand, well, yeah, the word says this, I'm not supposed to do this. A babe, they continually need to be reminded about the basic things over and over and over. It's a real blessing to be in a church that teaches the word of God, to actually be in a place that encourages us to you know, progress in spiritual maturity, right? To get past the basics, right, which is, I mean, topical sermons aren't bad, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking any churches, but it's, but it's easier for a person to be a babe with topical sermons, you know, that, that maybe don't get into a lot of the truths, then go through the word of God and be faced with these things and learn them and have to chew on them and apply them to your life and, and to work through. Now, that being said, we still have that responsibility to learn these things and, and, and apply them as believers, even though we do are in a Bible teaching church. So these believers, they had all the signs of being dull and hearing. How about you and I? How do we relate to these things? Well, if we have fallen short, if our baseline is low, there's good news. Because second, in chapter six, verses one through three, we see that the remedy for becoming dull and hearing. We see that there's a remedy for this. Verse one, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And so the writer begins by therefore, with the word therefore, pointing back to what he just got done saying. So in light of what he's been saying about their dullness of hearing, here's the remedy. Here's what you need to do. They were to leave the discussion of the, el of the elementary principles of Christ and go on to perfection. The elementary principles were those things in Judaism that pointed to Jesus. It was a thing that they already knew the things that already pointed them to Christ. And Paul had to address these things also in the book of Galatians. Remember when he went through the book of Galatians, there were these Judaizers that were coming in and they were teaching these Gentile believers that they needed to go back to the law and you know, be, you know, go under the law of Moses and, and follow all the rites and rituals. And Paul says, no, 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 not so. After a person has come to Christ, they don't need to go back to the law. Those are elementary things. We need to move forward. Here's how Paul explained it in Galatians 3.23-25. 20, uh, he says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. A tutor was for a child in that culture. They trained the child, they watched over the child, and when the child was mature, but when the child came of age, they were considered an adult. And they were no longer to need a tutor before, they were to press on. In the same way, these folks didn't need to go back to the elementary principles that they learned from Judaism that pointed to Jesus, that Jesus already fulfilled. They should have already knew these things and taught themselves them and pressed forward onto more weightier things, such as you know, how Jesus fulfilled the order of Melchizedek. The principles, pictures, and types prepared by the law all pointed the Jews to Jesus, their Messiah. Once Christ came and fulfilled the law, there was no need to go back to these things. They were to press forward onto maturity with Christ. And that's what the writer says here in the rest of verses um, one and two. The practices mentioned here are referring to those former practices of Judaism that Jesus 
fulfilled. Yes, some of these things have mentioned in the church age, such as like faith towards God, right? Eternal judgment, um, you know, the resurrection. These are all things that are, that are mentioned in the church, but these things are best interpreted, as we'll see, in relating to their former practices of Judaism and the things that they were taught that pointed to the fulfillment, which is Jesus. The writer begins by saying they were not to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God refers to their salvation in Christ. They were freed from the bondage and curse of the law. Now, interesting mention here of repentance and faith because it shows us that they're two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. They're not two separate works, but they're one act of conversion. True conversion has repentance and faith. You turn from sin, they turn from the law and the fact that it could save them and they turn towards God. It's, it's one act. And so they were not to go back to these things, back to the foundation of repentance from dead works. Dead works refers to those things that Christ fulfilled in the law. To go back to Judaism as they were thinking about doing would be going back to dead works. There was no more power in them. Sacrifice couldn't save them. Jesus fulfilled those things. The doctrine of baptisms. Notice the reference to baptism here is plural. In the New Testament, baptism is always singular. And actually, I'm told in Greek that it's actually a different word, our baptism from this. A better translation of this word baptisms is washings. And it referred back to the Levitical system of washings that they would have in the Old Testament. They no longer needed to go back to the, the washings of the Old Testament. Christ fulfilled these things. In Jesus, they were washed by the word of God. They were being sanctified by Jesus as he showed as he washed his disciples' feet. They, they acknowledged this fact by being publicly baptized in, identify, in identification with Jesus. There was no reason to go back. The laying on of hands. The laying on of hands in the Old Testament meant identification of the sinner with the sacrifice, right? They would lay hands on the sacrifice and that sacrifice would be offered in their place. There's no reason to go back to these things because Jesus had taken our place on the cross. He was identified with us. Our sin was imputed to him on the cross. He became our penal substitution, our sacrifice. There was no reason to go back. The resurrection of the dead. The Jews believed in a general resurrection based on the Old Testament. Martha affirmed this in John eleven twenty four. She says, well, yeah, Lord, we know that there's gonna be a resurrection. But Jesus gave her the insight concerning this. He was the fulfillment of it. He says, yeah, but Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they may die, yet shall they live. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And, and the Lord is the, the final, you know, the, the first fruits of that and the final fulfillment of all that it pointed to. Eternal judgment. Jews believed in eternal judgment, but Jesus expanded their understanding and said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever so, so shall believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So yeah, the Jews believed in eternal punishment, eternal judgment, but Christ fulfilled it. He says, oh yeah, by the way, if you don't believe in me, you'll receive eternal punishment. He was a fulfillment to that truth. And so the, it was really clear, rather than going back to the elementary things, the things that they learned when they were immature, being prepared for Christ, they were to press on to the more mature things that the writer was teaching them in the word of God. And, um, and, and he gave them the path of maturity here. He told them to press forward. Now, interesting thing here, 
it's not only based on us and our own strength and our own power, but their, grew, their growth and their pressing forward would actually come from God who works in us both the will and to do for his good brethren. We see that fact in the phrase, go on to perfection. And I'm told that this word in Greek, this phrase in Greek actually means to be carried by God. And so the writer says, hey, don't go back to those things, but rather press forward. And as you press forward, God is gonna carry you forward. He's gonna be the one who does the work in you. He's gonna be, one, be the one who creates this growth in you. And we see that echoed again in verse three. And this we will do if God permits. Now, James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. The phrase we'll do if God permits doesn't mean that there might be a possibility that God might say, well, not you. Maybe, maybe someone else, but not you. No, it doesn't mean that at all. This phrase is best understood as a writer's understanding that maturity only comes from the work of God. If we walk with God, God's way, by applying his word to our life, God will take us on to maturity. It's all by grace. Salvation began with God's grace. You know, sanctification is a work of God's grace and glorification will all be a work of God's grace. So in closing, how's our baseline? If it's low, well, let's follow the writer's remedy. Let's press forward. Let's leave those things that, you know, we can't turn from in our sin. You know, when we came to Christ, and let's, pro, let's press forward onto the things that the Lord wants to teach us and apply them to our life. As we make that effort, the Lord will come alongside of, you know, each one of us and work and to do for his good pleasure. He'll carry us forward to where when we look back, you know, maybe a year from now or so, we'll look back and we'll see that our baseline is higher than now. Amen?